Hey, why don't you grab your Bibles and turn with me to Ezekiel, book of Ezekiel. All right. All right, Ezekiel chapter 45 is where we are in our Through the Bible study. And the goal tonight, to finish the book of Ezekiel. Woo! Yeah, I was like, yeah, we're gonna be here at 10 o'clock. Uh, that's great, thanks. No, uh, we're, we're gonna get this done. And, um, uh, you know, Lord willing, uh, we'll be able to uh, start the book of Daniel next week, which I'm really excited about that. That's gonna be a blast. Um, but I have to commend you guys and all you online with us, uh, you know, going through the book of Ezekiel, it's not for the faint of heart. And uh, it's, a, it, you know, it's a book that requires some thought and, uh, you know, and, and a lot of people would say, well, why would you even do it? But, you know, I think that um, this is all important as we've mentioned before. Um, I, I wonder sometimes when we get to heaven, you know, when we look, look backward to think, man, look at all the stuff we were into that we shouldn't have been and all the stuff we should have been into, but we weren't. And I, I really, you know, it's like, uh, I really don't think we'll ever regret that Wednesday night time in Ezekiel when the millennial kingdom comes along and we'll go, you know, that was really time well spent. I'm glad I invested, you know, going into God's word on a Wednesday night. Um, I heard a story once of um, these, um, these guys that broke into a jewelry store and they were uh, quite crafty. In fact, they broke through these big security systems and, but they didn't steal a thing. All they did is carefully uh, rearrange the prices of things. Like all the really expensive diamonds, they put the cheapest little earring price on the, on the you know, $10,000 diamonds and they just swapped out. Well, the guy, it took him till like four in the afternoon of the next work day to figure out the prices had been changed. And he sold a bunch of, you know, uh, huge dollar uh, items for just, you know, a uh, few dollars a piece. Uh, and, uh, and, 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 you know, it, it cost them, you know, a million dollars just because uh, they got the prices wrong. I wonder if in heaven we're gonna go, man, we spent five bucks on something that was worth five cents. You know, all the stuff we get upset about in this life. But when we get to heaven, we're gonna realize, nope, the stuff that really is valuable is, uh, is the stuff that is on God's agenda. And as it turns out, the book of Ezekiel is part of God's agenda and his plan. And that's why I think the Lord's gonna bless you as you get through uh, this book with me tonight. Um, so uh, we pick it up kind of where we left off. We're talking about, um, of course, the, the temple of Ezekiel's period of the millennial kingdom. And uh, we, we've kind of done previous studies on that. If you, if you missed that stuff, we went through kind of the different temples, uh, the different temple periods, what the millennial kingdom's about. So this is kind of finishing up all the measurements and uh, those, those um, rooms and buildings of the temple. It's all part of the deal. So uh, we pick it up in verse one of chapter 45. Moreover, when you shall divide by lot the land for inheritance, you shall offer an oblation unto the Lord and a holy portion of the land. And the length shall be the length of five and 20,000 reeds and the breadth shall be 10,000. This shall be holy in all the borders thereof round about. What we're doing here now is talking about the dividing up of the land. And it's interesting because right now Israel is divided up only, you know, in modern day terms, you know, you have the West Bank and you have the Palestinian areas and territories and you have to go through check places and, and it's divided up. You know, in, in Joshua's day, when they were divvying up the land, they had very specific 
divisions. It is a little difficult though, even when you read the way they divided it up in the book of Joshua, as we read when we were in that book, um, it's still a little hard to tell exactly where, you know, perfect borders were of the tribe of Dan and Naphtali and Reuben and Gad and Manasseh and all those other, you know, knowing exactly those lines. So you see these uh, old maps are in the back of your Bible. Sometimes they'll have maps of the way they divvied up the land during the time of Joshua. This is gonna be a different divvying up. Uh, and it, it's a strange way to do it. And, and even this is a little bit like, uh, well, how do they do it? Are they, just, are they just little strips of land? You'll see maps on, if you Google Ezekiel's uh, dividing up of the land, you know, um, in, in Ezekiel you know, 48 and, and what have you, or 47, what you'll see is uh, Israel maps with rectangular lines on it because it seems that these are rectangular, huge, rectangular squares superimposed over the map of Israel. And each tribe gets us a, a rectangular strip. If you can sort of picture that, it's gonna be very equal. Well, Brett, what about the people that get down in the Negev desert versus the people that are up in Galilee? That's not fair, do you guys remember? The whole land's gonna be blessed, fruitful. It's all gonna come back to life. There won't be bad property in Israel during the millennial kingdom. So uh, I think all the tribes are gonna be blessed out of their socks. Uh, and they're gonna love their strip of land. Was that true, if you recall back in Joshua, was it true that they all loved their land that they were given? No, several of the tribes were so discontented, um, like the men of Dan, they were so bummed because they couldn't take the area from, from the people that had chariots, and they were always getting attacked with these high-tech chariot people. Um, so they ended up leaving and going up north to the very top of Israel and settling in a whole different place, which was really not the Lord's original plan for them. Uh, but but the, the, these tribes, the tribes of Israel, will like it during the millennial kingdom what they get. And that's what we're talking about is the divvying up of the land. It says in verse two, of this there shall be for the sanctuary 500 in length with 500 in breadth square round about and 50 cubits round about for the suburbs thereof. So we're going out from the sanctuary or the temple, out from there kind of as a center. Uh, by the way, in, in Israel today, you know, in Oregon, if you're saying we're gonna go, you know, down to Eugene, we say down because it's south from here. If you're in Medford, you say we're going north to Eugene or up to Eugene. Uh, in Israel, they don't talk like that. It's all up. You're, if you're going to Jerusalem, everything's up. We're going up to Jerusalem. If you're on the south, you're going up to Jerusalem. If you're in the north, you're going up to Jerusalem because they, they don't think of it in north and south. They think of it as mostly altitude. And Jerusalem's the high city in the very center of Israel. Everything's up to Jerusalem. And so that's, that's just kind of an interesting thing. But Jerusalem will be kind of the center. Uh, and then out from there, we kind of build these property strips uh, and the suburbs of the temple and what have you. And that's kind of what it's saying there. So it says in verse three, and of this measure shalt thou measure the length of five and 20,000 and the breadth of 10,000, and in it shall be the sanctuary and the most holy place. The holy portion of the land shall be for the priests, the ministers of the sanctuary, which shall come near to minister unto the Lord. And it shall be a place for their houses and a holy place for the sanctuary. And the five and 20,000 of length and the 10,000 of breadth shall also the Levites, the ministers of the house, have for themselves for a possession for 20 chambers. And ye shall appoint the possession of the city 5,000 broad and five and 20,000 long over against the oblation of the holy portion. It shall be for the whole house of Israel. 
and a portion shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other side of the oblation of the holy portion and of the possession of the city before the oblation of the holy portion and before the possession of the city from the west side westward and from the east side eastward and the length shall be over against one of the portions from the west border to the east border. In the land shall be his possession in Israel and my prince shall no more oppress my people, pardon me, my princes shall no more oppress my people and the rest of the land shall they give to the house of Israel according to their tribes. Thus saith the Lord God, let it suffice you, O princes of Israel, remove violence and spoil and execute judgment and justice. Take away your exactions from my people, saith the Lord God. You shall have just balances and a just epath and a just butt. Okay, what's going on? You're gonna have a just bath at the end of everything? Are they dirty? Okay, the word is bat, is how you say that. And these are all units of measure in verse uh, 10. Um, you say, well, Brett, what, what is a bat? Well, it's 6.6 gallons to 7.1 gallons. It's a liquid measure, this bat. Also, the ephah uh, is, is equal to one dry bushel. So th- these are just biblical measures. And, and you can look these things up if you're interested. In fact, um, uh, I, I stumbled onto a not very well-known book um, on this, uh, this whole Ezekiel's temple and all, all of this stuff. And I, I was kind of blown away at how good it was, but it's not a top seller probably because, um, because people don't care about Ezekiel's temple. <laughs> but if you are interested, um, I actually found out about it because the niece of the author uh, is an Athe Creeker. And so she, she brought this book to me like 15 years ago. And, uh, and she said, you might be interested in this. And I really was, and, and it was actually pretty amazing. And I looked today just to see if it's still there. <coughs> Excuse me, and you can get it still on Amazon uh, if you want. It's called Messiah's Coming Temple uh, by John W. Schmidt. And uh, it's, if you like the little drawings and the, and the kind of the details, and uh, like he goes into all the real, real clear details about how this looks and little sketches and stuff. That's pretty helpful, I think, uh, if you're interested in that. But um, it's talking about basically, you know, going from the temple outward and how is the property of Jerusalem gonna be used? Remember, it seems like Jerusalem is gonna be mostly, if not totally destroyed during the tribulation period. So it'll be rebuilt in the millennial kingdom. And, and there's certain sections that are gonna be given for the various offices, the priests, the sons of Zadok, um, but also this prince that's coming. We're gonna talk more about the prince. We raised the question, who is this prince? Is it Jesus or is it somebody else? And, uh, and we kind of landed last time as we don't really know for sure. Uh, but I gave you a few reasons why we sh- or things we should look for to kind of help us maybe decide or make up our minds on that one. Um, but all that to say, this prince, is, we're gonna talk further about that. But notice verse eight, it says there that the land will be um, his possession and my princes shall no more oppress my people. Isn't that something that leadership throughout the ages, whether you're talking about communism, socialism, you know, even capitalism, whatever it is, it can tend to take on a, a oppression from the leaders down through the ranks. Let them eat cake, you know, that kind of thing where who cares about the, young, the, the, the underlings and the people, the poor people and stuff like that. And that's been kind of the story of humanity really throughout all the ages. Um, the United States was an experiment and it, it, it seemed like it was sort of working 
as long as we had a, a proclivity toward God, toward godliness. Um, and, and it seems like the further we as a nation get away from God, the more oppression I think we are seeing and the uh, abusing of other people. Um, and uh, I'm looking forward to the millennial kingdom because that's gonna be a thing of the past when Christ comes and rules and reigns. So, you know, the question, by the way, of who the prince is, we know that the Messiah, Jesus, is gonna rule and reign in the millennial kingdom. But in Ezekiel's description, there's this prince that's going around doing stuff. And, uh, you know, you might think it's Jesus until you see some of his duties and some of the things he's gonna uh, do there during the millennial kingdom, and it, and it raises some questions. So we'll raise those questions as we get into it. But the princes of old that were, as it says here, oppressing my people, um, that's gonna be a done deal. Thank the Lord for that. It's interesting because today we're seeing that maybe on a new level. Um, you know, coronavirus sort of let, um, um, you know, uh, the government and some of the powers that be sort of uh, take advantage of, of, a, of a crisis. And there's some people that don't wanna let any crisis go to waste. And so you can almost become drunk with power once you sort of, you know, take that, I can make people do whatever I want them to do. And, and it starts to, people can start to see that and, can, and people start to rebel. Um, and it's a tricky one, especially when the Bible says that we're to obey the powers that be. Uh, and we're supposed to follow what, they're, what they tell us to do. Um, well, Brett, you guys at Athey Creek didn't do that. You guys broke the law and you started meeting. Well, you're here with us tonight, so what are you talking about? Uh, well, tonight's not illegal, but it was uh, for a while. Was it really illegal? Well, as it turns out, here's a couple things that I, I'd like to remind those naysayers that were all upset at Athey Creek for opening our doors when, when the governor was saying, everybody's got to close down. Um, what's, what's amazing is, by the way, once Oregon started opening up, that's when all of a sudden we started seeing people get sick with coronavirus. We had a year and a half of coronavirus-free bliss while we were all meeting, which is kind of an interesting thing. I wonder if the Lord's just going, see, oh, like I can protect you. <laughs> but, but some people say, well, Brett, why, why would you guys go against the law? I was accused of, you know, Romans 13, you're not obeying the powers that be. Well, as it turns out, there was no law passed saying churches couldn't meet. There was no law, you have to understand that. That was just a, you know, a governmental mandate. And we even, you know, when we first wanted to see, well, is this really a, a, a legitimate emergency? Is where, are we seeing, you know, like the scarlet fever and stuff, death everywhere? Is this something we really do need to do? And so we, like everybody else said, hey, we're gonna be polite and we're gonna hear what they say. We're gonna see how this rolls out. But when it came out that, and showed that it wasn't anything like they said it was gonna be, and they were shutting down things, you know, it's kind of, you know, there's a point, And I always said that, even at the beginning, I said, there's a point where we're gonna open up our doors with or without, uh, you know, uh, Kate Brown's uh, approval. Cause it wasn't a law that was passed. I hope you understand that. Also, um, the president of the United States and the attorney general at that time was saying, churches get back and meet. So we got the chief law enforcement officer of the United States, which was the attorney general saying, churches need to open their doors. If you remember that, uh, when that was all going down. So which, which one of the Romans 13 uh, officials do you, do you obey? Governor Brown or the attorney general of the United States? Well, Brett, that's a federal and state issue. As it turns out, the Bible doesn't tell us uh, what to do in that situation. But the Bible does tell us this do not forsake the assembling of yourselves together as the custom of some. 
So if I'm gonna err on one side of who's saying this is illegal and this isn't, I'm gonna go on the one that actually fits with the Bible. Does that make sense? Uh, and meeting is, is what the Bible tells us not to forsake. Uh, and so that's, that's why we did it. We weren't trying to rebel or anything. Then it was great because we had a bunch of people leave angrily. Brett, you're a lawbreaker and you're not, you're not loving people um, and stuff like that. That's what we heard. And I even was threatened by the state of Oregon with all kinds of things. Uh, but, um, but here's the thing that was interesting. Um, uh, eventually it came out and, uh, you know, there was a funny little thing that happened with churches in California. Uh, an attorney um, uh, who is, just happened to be our attorney as well won a, uh, like a seven or eight big legal cases against the state of California. Um, and then she won this case for, I think it was four, three or four churches. She won a case where the state of California owed each church $2 million for shutting them down and th harassing and threatening these churches. And so that just happened. And then, uh, and then as soon as that happened, suddenly Governor Brown said, hey, we're not gonna clamp down on churches. Churches, like she, she quietly backed down and said, churches can meet. Uh, uh, and was, what a coincidence. It's about the same time that uh, Californians forking out the dough. But anyway, all that to say, you know, um, we, we gather because that's what God tells us to do. And, and uh, I know a lot of pastors made the case, well, we can meet online and we can do this. And, and the online thing was wonderful for a short season. Uh, kept us all together kind of in a neat way, I told you. But that's not gathering. It's not the same as gathering with God's people. And um, I'm just so thankful that we were able to do that. But all that to say, I, I wonder if that was just a sneak preview. That whole thing with coronavirus and the government and all that, was that a sneak preview? Of, of, of more of this kind of uh, what could happen. It, you know, it's happened in other ages where the church was persecuted and people tried to, not that we were being persecuted, I'm not gonna say that, but you can see how that could happen pretty easily. And, uh, you know, we're seeing kind of this anger, whether you're talking about COVID or vaccines or Antifa or BLM, whatever the hot topic of the second is, I can see very easily things turn to a point where people will challenge and be angry with churches way worse than we saw last year. Uh, the reason I'm saying that is not to be a, you know, a doom predictor of doom and stuff like that, but I'm just saying we need to be prayed up. We need to, as a church, um, watch for this because this oppression, I think it could get a lot worse. When the, the Messiah comes, he's gonna make this declaration. I love a verse eight. He says, my princes shall no more oppress my people and the rest of the land. They shall give to the house of Israel according to their tribes. It's all gonna be pointed to Jesus at that point. So until then, we have to just do our best. We do have to obey the laws of the land. Uh, and uh, the only time you as a Christian break the laws of the land is if the laws are in direct uh, opposition to what the Bible uh, very clearly tells us to do. And that's an important thing. Uh, so these are tricky times. We need to be prayed up and be ready for that. Well, I wasn't gonna go into that tonight and now I'm way behind, so let's go. Um, verse 11, the epaph, the, the bat, shall be one measure that the bat shall, uh, may contain the 10th part of a homer and the epaph, a 10th part of a homer. The measure thereof shall be after the homer and the shekel shall be 20 giras. 20 shekels, five and 20 shekels, 15 shekels shall be your mana. Uh, mana. Um, that's not mana like bread, it's a, it's a, uh, a unit of, of money. Verse 13, this is the uh, oblation that you shall offer the sixth part of an epaph of a homer of wheat, and ye shall give the sixth part of an epaph of a homer of barley. Concerning the ordinance of oil, the bot of oil, 
shall, ye shall offer the tenth part of the bat out of the core, which is a homer of ten baths. For ten baths are a homer. You just getting all this? I said, bro, what in the world is this about? Um, well, it, it's the measurement of, that's gonna be very precise when you, in the millennial kingdom, they come to worship the Lord, there's to be a precise measurement. And um, you're not, they're not gonna use gallons or liters or anything like that. Um, they're gonna use the biblical measurement system in the, in, in the millennial kingdom. That's what I believe is gonna happen. So if you really wanna know, uh, what, you know what's gonna happen there. Now, by the way, we will, will be seeing this temple. My question is, what will our, will our role be in this temple? Because remember, the Jews, the Levites are gonna serve in the temple. The sons of Zadok are gonna be doing most of the heavy lifting in the temple. People in the world that are left from the tribulation period that live through it in their normal bodies will be coming to worship in this temple. But what will we be doing? Will we be in this temple worshiping? There's some interesting questions about that. We're gonna be given our glorified bodies by the time that all happens. And um, you know, we're, we're told that we're gonna be ruling and reigning with him, uh, with Christ in the millennial kingdom. So it makes you wonder if the church uh, that was raptured uh, you know, and those that died before that uh, might be used in a special capacity kind of globally to uh, sort of lead. And um, it, who knows, there's some interesting questions. But for the people of the temple, there's gonna be exact measurements of, of, um, of what they're supposed to give when it comes to this idea of sacrifice and what have you. I always, uh, I'm interested, you know, when people talk to me about the tithe, which is the word tenth, the word tenth. And when a person gives of their tithe to the Lord, um, what are we supposed to give? It's one tenth. And, um, and I, I always am intrigued by that. People say, well, Brett, I don't know if I should literally give a tenth. And I don't know if I really wanna give a tenth to the Lord. Um, well, I would say, well, then don't, because the Lord says that he loves a cheerful giver. And if you're giving begrudgingly, you're kind of wasting your money anyway. <laughs> so don't even bother uh, if the attitude is wrong. But as it turns out, it's a funny thing that the Lord did, did give us that, that tenth as sort of the, the, the part of our giving of our tithe. And uh, I believe the Lord is into measurements and numbers and exactness. I, that's just my, my opinion. Um, now, I wouldn't make a legal case out of that and say you have to give a tenth, but I look at it more as a get-to. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, my mom and dad taught me to give a tenth of all that I possessed. When I got my you know, dollar uh, salary for you know, chores around the house, I would give one dime every Sunday when I was six years old or whatever. And that's how my parents taught me. So they'd say, that, is, that belongs to the Lord. And they'd show me Malachi chapter three and all that. The Lord seems to be into numbers and quantities and exactness. I think that's an interesting thing. Um, so I do that willingly. And, and I, th I think that's kind of the fun part uh, is doing what the Lord says. Here's what I prescribe. And that's kind of the way it's gonna be here in the millennial kingdom. He wants the exact measures uh, here and he defines those. Now he says about the sacrifice animals, verse 15, and one lamb out of the flock out of 200, out of the fat pastures of Israel for a meat offering and for a burnt offering and for peace offerings to make reconciliation for them, saith the Lord God. All the people of the land shall give this oblation for the prince in Israel. And it shall be the prince's part to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and drink offerings in the feast and in the new moons and in the Sabbaths, in all the solemnities of the house of Israel he shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offerings to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. 
Thus saith the Lord God, in the first month of the first day of the, of the month, thou shalt take a young bullock without blemish and cleanse the sanctuary. And the priest shall take of the blood of the sin offering and put it upon the post of the house and upon the four corners of the settle of the altar and upon the post of the gate of the inner court. And so shalt thou do the seventh day for the month, every one that erreth, uh, and for him that is simple, so shall ye reconcile the house. In the first month, in the 14th day of the month, ye shall have the Passover and a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. Now, if you're an old school Bible person, there's some things that are kind of intriguing here to you, perhaps, uh, if you know about some stuff. Otherwise, you go, man, okay, great. Passover, burnt offerings, whatever. Well, the first big thing is we see the prince offering a burnt offering here. And some people say, well, would Jesus ever do that? My answer to that is yes. I'll tell you why I think that's true. Uh, it could be, and I'm not arguing that this is Jesus, but this prince, he's, he's, he's offering burnt offerings. Uh, it says, and it shall be for the prince's part, his job, to give burnt offerings and meat offerings and drink offerings in the feast. Um, so um, this doesn't sound as much like Jesus because he doesn't need to give uh, offering for sin. Would you guys agree with that? But did Jesus need to be baptized for sin? No, because Jesus never sinned. But did he need to get baptized? Yes. You guys should be answering these questions. You're making me nervous. Did Jesus need to be baptized? Yeah, because remember Jesus said to John the Baptist, you know, I need to do this uh, to fulfill all righteousness. That's why Jesus did it. He didn't get baptized because he was a sinner. That's why we get baptized. Are you guys with me on that? So Jesus was the perfect model of what you're supposed to do. So you could, if you wanted to, maybe make this argument that the reason he, if he is the prince here, is um, you know, sacrificing, uh, it's not for his own sin, of course. But some would say he's doing it as a, to fulfill all righteousness. But then the language gets a little more uh, interesting when it says um, he will make these offerings at the end of verse 17. He shall prepare the sin offering and the meat offering and the burnt offering and the peace offering to make reconciliation for the house of Israel. So it does seem that he's not doing it as much for himself, but he's, this prince is offering for the house of Israel. And this, this prince, he's not called a priest. That's the weird part of this. Ezekiel's temple, if, you know, if you're an Old Testament, you know, diehard Old Testament person, it makes you a little uncomfortable having a prince, not a priest, offering sacrifices for the people of Israel. That's where some people say, well, this must be Jesus because only Jesus is the one who's prophet, priest, king. He can do all of those at the same time, um, if you know your Bible. So there's great debate that people have about who is this prince. But there's more things that'll raise more questions as we go further, okay? And I'm gonna kinda let you guys land on, on kinda what you think and you can dig further if you want. Now, notice with me here on the Passover. Um, it says there at the end of verse 21, the Passover, a feast of seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. Um, did you notice what they did there? In the kingdom, in the millennial kingdom, the Passover and the feast of unleavened bread will be one, one, one event. Did you notice that? Um, in the Old Testament, it was two separate feasts. Um, now, what's interesting is there's evidence in the New Testament that by the New Testament period of Jesus, they were doing those, those two in one feast by the time Jesus came. Uh, so that's an interesting thing. It's like a continuation during the millennial kingdom uh, where the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread will be in one fatal uh, sweep, you know. Uh, I guess you could say it's like having Thanksgiving and Christmas all at once. 
Uh, that's kind of the idea. Um, now, um, does anybody notice uh, as we keep going, there's, there, there's a major feast that's missing from here. Let's read on, verse 22. And upon that day shall the prince prepare for himself and for all the people of the land a bullock for a sin offering. Ooh, did you see what I just read? The prince, the pre, the, pardon me, the, pre, the prince will prepare. Boy, this is like Peter Piper picked a peck of peppers. Uh, the prince will prepare him for himself and for all people. That, that's an interesting thing. So you can't just say this prince is preparing it just for the people of Israel, but it also says for himself. Okay, so that takes us away from being Jesus. Um, uh, but he does this, uh, the bullock, for a sin offering. Verse 23, and seven days of the feast, he shall prepare a burnt offering to the Lord, seven bullocks and seven rams without blemish daily, seven days and a kid of the goats daily for a sin offering. And he shall prepare a meat offering of an epaph for a bullock and an epaph for a ram and a hin of oil for an epaph. Now, um, if you're comparing the priestly duties and these feasts and what have you from the Mosaic law, which is what the Jews would do during the time of Solomon and all the kings, when they were doing their feasts, there were certain numbers of rams and bulls. As it turns out, the Mosaic law says, you're to offer two bullocks, one ram, seven lambs, and uh, one oblation of fine flour and oil. That was the Mosaic rule. But here in Ezekiel, you got seven bullocks and seven rams, zero lambs. That's an interesting thing. Anyone wanna guess why there's zero lambs in this particular uh, temple? Right, I think that a lot of the things that, have, that are um, sort of deleted from the temple worship in Ezekiel's temple has to do that, with the fact that Jesus, the lamb, is gonna be there. Uh, that's an important thing. When Jesus is there, there's no need for the lamb offerings because he's there. Jesus, remember John the Baptist said about Jesus, behold, the lamb that takes away the sins of, of uh, the Lamb of God takes away the sins of the world. Um, so interesting, you go uh, from, you know, two bullocks, one ram, you know, seven lambs to just seven bulls, seven rams. Uh, seven's the number of what in the Bible? Completion and perfection. So that's, I think, what we're seeing is we're seeing the completion of that temple worship with Christ there as the Messiah in the temple. We're seeing the perfect form of worship there. It's, it's, um, it's, it's easier. It's more simple than the, the Mosaic uh, standard. I like that. Everything's being simplified. Verse 25, in the seventh month, in the 15th day of the month, shall he do the like in the feast of seven days according to the sin offering, according to the burnt offering, according to the meat offering, and according to the oil. So um, um, this would have been, by the way, to people in Ezekiel's time, a word of real comfort. Because if you remember, Ezekiel's writing this as they're there in captivity in Babylon, um, and the temple's destroyed, and there's no worship going on, there's no feasts or Passovers, it's all, there's in captivity in Babylon. So the fact that Ezekiel's saying, hey, thus saith the Lord, there's gonna be a temple, it's coming. And temple worship's gonna be reinstituted. Um, they, I don't know if they understood it'd be you know, thousands of years in the future, but to the Jews, this would have been music to their ears that temple worship would be once again reinstituted. Now, what's the major feast that's being left out of this? Uh, anybody? Somebody said it, I think. The Feast of Pentecost 
It's, uh, it's not in this, in the temple worship in the millennial kingdom. Why is such a major feast left out of temple worship there in Ezekiel's temple? Well, the, the feast of Pentecost uh, is that of uh, anticipatory. It's, it's one where you anticipate, um, you know, uh, of, of things to come. That's what the feast of Pentecost sort of stands for. And by the way, that's when in the New Testament, that's when the church received the power of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost. Uh, you know, and, and so th- th- this is kind of interesting that the kingdom period doesn't have that because I don't think we're going to be anticipating things to come. It's all there. Uh, Jesus is there, his kingdom is there. Things are ruling and reigning in righteousness. There's nothing to anticipate. We'll be enjoying that. It's like when you were a little kid and you knew you were going to Disneyland, you were so excited. Um, and you were anticipating something glorious. And every time you saw you know, the tickets or your mom reminded you that you were going to, you were excited. But once you got to Disneyland, you weren't saying, I'm really anticipating being at Disneyland. No, you're there and you're having the time of your life. Seeing Mickey and the gang, right? Well, that, that's the reason I, I remember that as a kid. I knew when we'd go to Disneyland, I was all excited all summer long. I was going to see my grandparents and we'd go see the Pirates of the Caribbean. My dad helped build that, by the way. Uh, but uh, all that to say, that's, that's us in heaven. You know, we won't be anticipating anything because we'll be there. We'll be enjoying it. Uh, that's why the Feast of Pentecost, in my opinion, is why that we're not gonna be celebrating that. It's an anticipatory sort of thing. Does that make sense? All right, chapter 46. Thus saith the Lord God, the gate of the inner court that looketh toward the east shall be shut. The six working days but on the Sabbath it shall be opened, and in the day of the new moon it shall be opened. And the prince shall enter in by the way of the porch of that gate without, and shall stand by the post of the gate. And the priest shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings, and he shall worship at the threshold of the gate. Then he shall go forth, but the gate shall not be shut until evening." Interesting there in verse two, the prince goes in the gate and he worships. Does that sound like Jesus? Kind of not. Jesus is the one to be worshiped. So it's an interesting thing, but Jesus did pray to the father when he was here uh, on this earth. So these are the arguments people make about uh, this prince of who he is. Um, Now I'll show you one more thing that's gonna be a problem if you think this is Jesus um, that I think might include more that it's David. Uh, and I'll give you sort of that here in a minute. The prince might be David. Uh, check it out, verse three. Likewise, the people of the land shall worship at the door of this, of this gate before the Lord in the Sabbaths and in the new moons. Um, and the burnt offering that the prince shall offer unto the Lord in the Sabbath day shall be six lambs without blemish and a ram without blemish. So this is a, a whole nother thing in the new moons and the Sabbaths and the feasts and this festival. Now, here's the thing. Don't be one of these people that get all caught up into the uh, Judaism and the temple worship practices today. We are the church of Jesus Christ. Um, It's a different time and it's a different season. The reason I say this is some of us that love the Old Testament, and I do, and I like studying these feasts and festivals, and we went through them in painful detail back when we were in Leviticus and some of these other Old Testament passages. But some, I've noticed there's this propensity for Gentiles to sometimes get overly excited about the Judaism practices. Um, Well, Brett, what could be wrong with that? Ah, nothing. But when it starts to get a little weird and people start saying, well, we we celebrate the Passover. You you don't, but you you should. 
if you really were, you know, understanding the Bible. I'm, I'm sort of being facetious here, but that, there's this little nuance. Have you met people like this that sort of put a little guilt trip on you for not doing a Passover or you're, you don't have you know, all the feasts memorized and you don't know all that stuff? I, I, far be it for me to say you shouldn't study the Bible, but in the New Testament, um, when people start making a case that you've got to keep the Sabbath day uh, in the same way the Jews had to keep the Sabbath day, Oh, for sure, we're, the Sabbath is a 10 commandment thing. And I believe that we, as a principle of life, we should remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, of course. I've done whole teachings on the Sabbath and what that means, both in the Old Testament, but also for the New Testament church. It's an important thing. But if the Sabbath day starts to become this thing where you're making it more of a Judaism Sabbath, you know, the problem is we're not Jews and we're not asked or required to do this. I tell this story from time to time, but this, I took some nice people to Israel and, um, and they just got so in, into it. And it's, it is, it's, it's amazing going to Israel and, and seeing it, you know, but they came home all excited about Judaism and stuff and it got a little weird. They'd wear these little Jewish uh, prayer shawls and they'd let their tassels come and sort of dangle out from behind their clothes just to let people know, <laughs> I've got my prayer shawl on, you know, and that's a Judaism thing. Um, but they were starting to kind of play this little game, you know, of, of sort of being, you know, Messianic Jew or Messianic Gentiles or whatever they wanted to call them. Um, but it got really weird when they started coming to our Sunday night worship. And they, uh, at that time, we were using just regular old pita bread for our, um, our communion table, um, you know, the flat bread. Uh, but as it turns out, that some of the pita bread has a, a little bit of yeast in it. And uh, they went around and said, uh, they would talk to people. As people would go up to kneel down and take communion and take the bread and they were praying, people would go, you know, that, that's got leaven in it. Um, but we have some matzah here. And they literally took matzah out of their pockets and said, here. Now I would never eat anything that was in somebody's pocket ever. <clears throat> you have to understand that. Um, that's gross. But these people had matzah in their pockets and they were saying, you, you really should eat this matzah instead of this bread. This is, uh, this is not right. Athe Greeks got it wrong. And, uh, and for years, we continued to use that bread just because it was legalistic and weird. And I did it just in defiance of that. Um, uh, that's probably bad. But um, later on, we did start using matzah, uh, you know, because matzah is really cool. It's, it's, it is neat to use matzah, but not because we were trying to be more Jewish. Um, you know, we, you know we, we at Athey Creek, we believe in you know, bread and, and the cup, and it's not as much about those exact elements. And I understand people saying, but, but I'm loving all this. Totally get out of that. But, but here's the thing. In the New Testament church, <clears throat> should people judge us about how we keep the Sabbaths or, or uh, the festivals or the feast? Or, you know, there were people saying, unless you have a, uh, you know, the, the, unless you have a, uh, you know, Passover supper at your house, you're really not, as good of a Christian as you should be. There was sort of this thing going on. Let me uh, remind you, jot this down in your notes. Colossians chapter two, verse 16 says this. And this is, you know, Paul talking to the Colossian church. He says, let no man judge you therefore in meat or in drink or respect of a holy day or of the new moons or of the Sabbath days, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the body is of Christ. Let no man beguile you of your reward in a voluntary humility and worshiping of angels, intruding into those things which he hath not seen, vainly puffed up by his fleshly mind. What's Paul warning of? There was this religious trip that people were 
being put on in, in the Colossian church saying, yeah, you gotta keep the new moons and the feasts and the festivals and the Sabbaths. And people got all hung up on which was, was the Sabbath and, and stuff like that. Um, by the way, our Seventh-day friend, Venice friends, some of them are a little more chill on this. Some are um, deathly serious that you and I, by meeting on Sundays, um, we have taken the mark of the beast. Have you ever heard uh, Seventh-day Adventists? Some of the hardcore ones will tell you as a Sunday worshiper, you've taken the mark of the beast. Um, um, first of all, when you take the mark of the beast, it won't look like what day you're worshiping. It's gonna be uh, signing on to a world leader saying, I'm on board with this guy. And it's gonna be during the tribulation period. So that's, that's totally ridiculous, that whole argument. Um, Aether Creek, we cover all our bases. We meet on the Sabbath day, whether it's Saturday night or uh, Sunday morning, we, we cover all the bases. You can come whenever you want. <laughs> but actually the real Sabbath, if you wanna be legalistic, starts Friday when the sun goes down. So that's when you really should be maybe having, if you're being legalistic and weird about it. But as it turns out, in the New Testament church, let no man judge you concerning the new moons, the festivals, the feasts, and the Sabbath days, um, which are a shadow of Christ. They were all, the Sabbath was originally meant to point us to Jesus. The church of Jesus Christ has Jesus in the church. Uh, we're the body of Christ. And that's the point that Paul's making. You don't get all excited about the shadow when you have the real thing there. Does that make sense? So don't let people lay that trip on you. Well, which day are you worshiping and stuff like that? The Bible is clear in the New Testament um, to be, be cautious about that kind of legalism. I bring that up because in our text here, it talks about in the millennial kingdom, there will be times where they're talking about the, the new moons, the Sabbaths, and some of those Ju Judaism practices will be reinstituted. Again, the question is, will we be practicing them during the millennial kingdom, I kind of think no, because we're not gonna be uh, running or in charge of this temple. This is the Jews that are gonna be doing that. So it's kind of an interesting question about our role in the millennial kingdom. So the, um, it says that uh, they're gonna be offering the, um, this before the Lord and the new moons, the Sabbaths, verse four, and the burnt offering that the prince shall offer. Again, the prince is offering an offering. Um, unto Jehovah in the Sabbath, they shall be six lambs without blemish, a ram without blemish. And the meat offering shall be an epaph for a ram and the meat offering for the lambs as he shall be able to give and a hen of oil to an epaph. Um, and in the day of the new moon, it shall be a young bullock without blemish and six lambs and a ram and they shall without, uh, be without blemish. Uh, and he shall prepare a meat offering, an epaph for a bullock, an epaph for a ram, and for the lambs according to his hand shall attain unto him a hen and oil to an epaph. This is all the measurements and the costs of sacrifice that you'll make before the Lord. Verse eight, and when the prince shall enter, he shall go in by the way of the porch of that gate, and he shall go forth by the way thereof. But when the people of the land shall come before the Lord in solemn feasts, he that entereth in by the way of the north gate to worship shall go out by the way of the south gate. He that entereth by the way of the south gate shall go forth by the way of the north gate, and he shall not return by the way of the gate whereby he came in, but shall go forth over against it. We talked about verse eight and nine on, on Sunday where we were talking about how the Lord wanted the people that go to worship to go in one way and come out another. Um, the, it says here, the prince gets to go in one way and out the other. So if this is Jesus, that makes total sense. If this is David or some other dude, 
uh, it's, it's an interesting thing. He's given at least a place of real honor. So again, the mysterious prince of Ezekiel's chapter 40 through 48 is kind of an interesting debate of who is this prince. And you'll hear people that come down really hard on one or the other, but I, people that I respect on both sides of the argument, I'm kind of like, well, I guess this is one of the things when I get to the millennial kingdom, I'm gonna say, hey, Lord, who's the prince of Ezekiel? Because I'm not 100% sure, honestly, uh, just being, being honest with you. So, uh, but the people will go in one way and come out the other. That's what I hope you and I do when we come into the presence of the Lord. Go in one way, come out, change, transform. That's what the Lord wants of us. Verse 10, and the prince in the midst of them, when they go in, shall go in, and when they go forth, shall go forth. So the prince is leading the way. And in the feasts and in the solemnities of the meat offering shall be an epaph to a bullock and an epaph to a ram and to the lambs as he is able to give and a hen of oil to an epaph. Now, when the prince shall prepare a voluntary burnt offering of, uh, or peace offerings uh, voluntarily, uh, voluntarily unto the Lord, one shall then open him the gate that looketh toward the east and he shall prepare his burnt offering and his peace offerings as he did on the Sabbath day. Then he shall go forth and after his going forth, one shall shut the gate. Thou shalt daily prepare a burnt offering unto the Lord of, uh, of the Lamb of the first year without blemish. Thou shalt prepare it every morning. Uh, by the way, this was the requirement of the Passover in Exodus 12. It was a lamb of the first year without blemish. All pointing to Jesus, by the way. Jesus was the spotless lamb. Um, a lamb in its first year is a lamb in its prime of life. Just like Jesus was crucified in his prime of life. Um, this is all part of this uh, remembering Jesus in the millennial kingdom, but remembering backward. Verse 14, thou shalt prepare a meat offering for it every morning, the sixth part of an epath, the third part of a hen of oil to temper with fine flour, a meat offering continually by a perpetual ordinance unto the Lord. Thus shall they prepare the lamb and the meat offering and the oil every morning for a continual burnt offering. Thus saith the Lord God, if the prince give a gift unto any of his sons, the inheritance thereof shall be his sons. It shall be uh, their possession by inheritance. But if he give a gift uh, of his inheritance to one of his servants, then it shall be his to the year of liberty, after it shall return to the prince. But his inheritance shall be his sons for them. Moreover, the prince shall not take of the people's inheritance by oppression to thrust them out of their possession, but he shall give his son's inheritance out of his own possession that my people be not scattered every man from his possession. Do you see, this is, now this is where it starts getting weird about the prince. Verse 16, thus saith the Lord God, if the prince give a gift to any of his sons, does Jesus have any sons? Well, if you read the stupid Da Vinci Code, then yes. Uh, they're British guys or something, uh, the sons of Jesus. Um, and I gotta say, I hope you're not duped by some of these weird, it's amazing to me. If you, do you guys remember, when was the Da Vinci Code? That was like 15, 20 years ago now. But it made the movie thing and the book was a bestseller and everybody acted like it was some great academic work. The guy wrote it as just sort of a fiction book. And he even admitted that at first. But then people started saying, this is really amazing. I think it's true. I think this really happened, that Mary Magdalene and Jesus, what did they go to Britain or England somewhere and had kids and stuff and um, totally ridiculous. 
Uh, just look at his bibliography in the back of the book. It's, it's the most embarrassing list of books. Just look at the bibliography, you'll laugh. It's hilarious. Um, but don't believe that stuff, even though Discover Channel and History Channel and all these people jumped on board like it was some great work of history. Um, totally ridiculous. But to say all that, Jesus did not have sons. Um, so this prince has sons. Well, Bretton, how can people that argue this is Jesus, how can, how can you, they make this argument? Well, as it turns out, uh, we're called the sons of God. If you read the Bible, sometimes we Christians are likened to the children of God or even uh, linked to the son of man, Jesus, as the sons of God. Like, like there's some interesting language there. Now, the, the, the danger comes when people start saying, we're the sons of God, so we are gods. Um, there's cults that say that. But we, uh, some people can make the argument in the Bible that we could be called the sons of God in the best sense of that word. And that's how they make the argument that this is still Jesus. Um, don't know. But that's, that's the way it's, uh, it goes down. Well, um, can't leave verse 17 without mentioning the year of liberty. Does anybody remember what that's called in the Old Testament? Uh, the law of Moses? Yes, the year of Jubilee. Uh, what a great thing. And, and by the way, the year of Jubilee speaks of the millennial kingdom, I think, forward of when all things will be right. The year of Jubilee is when ever, all the property that was in debt went back to the original owner. All the debts were forgiven. That'd be a great thing. Wouldn't that be great if like next year was the year of Jubilee? All your debts just whoosh, forgiven. Uh, your, your college loan, over. Uh, like your house mortgage, done. Just free. Uh, there, once every 50 years, there was this year of Jubilee that happened. It's, it, it's basically saying here in the millennial kingdom, the year of Jubilee will be reestablished. It's called the year of liberty here. But you can read about the year of Jubilee in Leviticus chapter 25, right around verse uh, 10. Talks about the year of Jubilee. We did a whole study on the year of Jubilee back then. Verse 19, after he brought me through the entry, which was at the side of the gate into the holy chambers of the priests, which looked toward the north and behold, there was a place on the two sides westward. Then said he unto me, this is the place where the priest shall boil the trespass offering and the sin offering, where they shall make the meat uh, offering, that they bear them uh, not unto the utter court to sanctify the people. Then he brought me forth to the utter court and caused me to pass by the four corners of the court. And behold, every corner of the court, there was a court. <laughs> so you got four corners in a court, a court and a court. Uh, in the four corners of the court, verse 22, there were courts joined of 40 cubits long and 30 broad. These four corners were of one measure. And there was a row of them building round about in them, round about them with uh, four, and it was made with boiling places under the rows round about. Then said he unto me, these are the places of them that boil, where the ministers of the house shall boil the sacrifice of the people. Um, I'll show you, do I have that uh, image? Check that, I brought that with me again, my little uh, drawing of this temple. But um, you can kind of see in Ezekiel's temple, you've got the, uh, the four corners. I don't know if you guys can see that from here, but, and I don't have a cramp right now. Um, uh, <laughs> but you can see the little corner buildings, the priest kitchens on all four corners. And you can see the little lowered area. That's the court outside of the court those little corners by the priest's kitchen. And it kinda, it kinda helps you sort of get a sense of all this. Um, again, you can, if you're that kind of person, you can read Ezekiel chapters 40 through 48. And if you just meticulously draw out everything, this is about as good of an example as I've seen 
of what all that stuff's gonna look like <clears throat> with the cubits and the hand breadths and all the measurements. <clears throat> but these are the, the chambers and the places that we've been talking about. So <clears throat> there's enough information here, even though we're reading and going, what's this, an epaph for a what? And what lamb and animal and what room and court? It gets a little dizzying, but some of you have that engineering mind. I know who some of you are. And you're thinking, I wanna see this. And, and this is really, uh, uh, this image, by the way, comes from Logos Bible Software, which is pretty, pretty good reference if you wanna look that up. But all that to say, that's what we just read about there in uh, chapter uh, 46. The, the corner kitchens uh, where they're gonna boil the, uh, work, the work of the altar. Now in chapter 47, we looked at that on Sunday, uh, verses one through uh, 12, and that was about the river of life of Ezekiel's temple. Um, the river of life. And we saw the river of life, the river of depth, the river of restoration, and the river of fruitfulness, or um, what was our fourth one? Fruitfulness, I, I guess. What, huh? Fullness of the Spirit. Yeah, we talked about that too. Um, so anyway, uh, I, I don't remember that. I think it was an R though, a river of restoration. Yeah. No, but there was another one. Oh, maybe not. Uh, anyway, I, I, should probably, I should probably memorize that, but I only gave the sermon five times. Um, <clears throat> so that's verses... That's verses one through 12, um, uh, that river at Ezekiel's temple. Uh, I love that. It's, it's, it's one of my favorite features, by the way, of the whole Ezekiel's temple, that little river that uh, you see. In the drawing that I just showed you, Mike, can we go back to that? That little drawing I showed you, there's this tiny little river you can see. It's barely even on there. Uh, the little blue uh, river that's there, you can kind of see it. But remember, it comes out of the right side of the door of the temple. That river comes from the ground. But then as remember Ezekiel went down river, went through the East gate, you know, a thousand cubits and it started to get deeper into your ankle, ankle depth. And by the time he went out several thousand cubits, he was swimming. Uh, it was deep enough for him to swim in as it went down <clears throat> from the temple mount. So we talked about that river last uh, Sunday. Verse 13 of chapter 47, thus saith the Lord God, this shall be the border whereby ye shall inherit the land according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Joseph shall have two portions. Anybody wanna guess why Joseph gets two portions? He had two sons named Ephraim and Manasseh, correct. And a lot of times when you see the listing of the 12 tribes of Israel, you don't see Joseph there. It's because Ephraim, well, let's see. 12 tribes, if you include Joseph, shouldn't there be then like more, there'd be like 13 tribes? Well, the reason there's only 12 is there's always supposed to be 12 tribes. And no matter what the Lord does in his Bible, he always ends up with 12 tribes. He actually subtracts tribes. And it depends on which list you're looking at. And all the lists are a little different. In Revelation, it'll leave out like the tribe of Dan. And there's reasons why Dan was left out. There's times where Simeon and Levi are left out. Uh, Levi is left out a lot of times of the list of the tribes of Israel because they were the priests and they didn't get an inheritance of the land. So you'll come across certain listings of the 12 tribes of Israel. The Levites aren't included. You're like, but there's still 12. How'd they do that? Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph. Um, don't let that bother you. Um, if you do an in-depth study on this, and we have actually in previous studies of the 12 tribes, um, there's reasons why some of those tribes are left out and it's because of usually their sins of the past. Um, remember Simeon, uh, you know, uh, gets left out along with Le Levi because do you remember what they did to the men of Shechem? 
Um, they, they told the men of Shechem, hey, we'll align with you as a city to our people, uh, the Jews, if you guys all get circumcised. Remember this? And Simeon and Levi made them a deal and, and all the guys from Shechem said, cool. Like, I, I don't get why this whole town would say, yeah, we'll do this thing that you Jews do, circumcise all the men. But they did and they, you know, it had to do with their sister and all this stuff, it's a long story. But um, the men all got circumcised. Well, they're still totally in pain, lying in their beds, you know, uh, recovering from their circumcision operations. Simeon and Levi came there with their swords and hacked all the men up and killed them all. Um, now, in my opinion, they kind of deserved that. Uh, what they kind of got what was coming to them, if you know the story. Uh, the Shechemites were a bad group of people, but at the same time, uh, and, and there was a rape involved, and that's why Simeon and Levi were living. But they took the matters in their own hands and slew a whole city for a small group of people's uh, sin. And remember, Jacob said, oh, you two sons, you've caused my name to stink in this land. That's what he said. Um, and so when the passing out of the blessing came, when Jacob was blessing the 12 sons of Israel or the 12 tribes of Israel, um, Simeon and Levi got kind of cursed. And the Levites got the worst curse of all, that they'd have no inheritance in the land. Question, how did God turn the curse of the Levites of no, getting no inheritance in the land, how did God turn that around for good? He made them the priests, so they wouldn't have an inheritance, but the Lord would be their inheritance and they would serve you know, in the ministry. And that was actually ended up being more of a blessing than a curse. And does anybody remember, why did the Lord give that blessing to the Levites, anybody? You know, Levi was the stinker who got them all into trouble, the guy, Levi. But their descendants were gonna be cursed for them forward. There was a thing that they did, if you recall at Mount Sinai, Remember when Moses came down and they, the people were you know, partying and, and doing the whole golden calf thing? And, the, and, and Moses said, who is on the Lord's side? And the only people that said we are is the Levites, the cursed tribe. They were cursed and they said, we're on the Lord's side. And Moses said, draw your swords and hack up these people who are worshiping this golden calf. And the Levites hacked up the people. You know, 3,000 people died that day because the Levites slew them because they were doing an unholy thing. And the Lord said, because you guys did this, the Levites, guess what? Even though you're cursed, I'm gonna still bless you. I'm gonna give you an inheritance in the land. It's almost like the Lord always finds ways to bless people that really are cursed. You and I were cursed with sin. We deserve nothing. But the Lord has a way of figuring out how to get us in, you know? I love that about the Lord. He's very creative in that. Moses was cursed. You don't get to go into the promised land. And he looked over the place of Israel and he died. Years later, guess how Moses got snuck into the promised land? There when the transfiguration, Jesus, Moses and Elijah, where were they? In the promised land. And Moses is with the Messiah. Could it get any better than that? There's Moses and Jesus and glowing, you know? And the Lord snuck him in. How did he sneak him in? Because God is gracious and merciful. And the same way the Levites got in, the same way Moses got in, is the same way you're gonna get in. Because God is gracious. Don't you love that? I wasn't gonna go into that. <clears throat> we gotta hurry. <laughs> um, so, um, so uh, where were we? Uh, 14, wow, we're really moving. I got one verse after that. Okay, here we go. Verse 14, <laughs> and you shall inherit it, one uh, as well as the other, concerning the which I lifted up mine hand to give it in, um, unto your fathers, and this land shall fall into you, uh, you for inheritance. And this shall be the border of the land toward the north side 
from the great sea, uh, the way to Hethlon, as men go to Zedad, Hamat, Birota, uh, Sibraim, which is between the border of Damascus and the border of Hamat, um, Hatzar Hatikon, uh, which is by the coast of Hauran. Um, and the border from the sea shall be Hatzar Inan, the border of Damascus and the north and northward, um, and the border of Hamat. Uh, this is the north side. And from the east side, you shall measure from Hauran and from Damascus and from Gilead and from the land of Israel by Jordan, from the border unto the east sea, and this is the east side. And the south side, southward from Tamar, even to the waters of strife in Kadesh, um, the river of the great sea, and this is the south side, southward. The west side shall also be the great sea from the border uh, till a man come over against Hamat, and this is the west side, so shall ye divide this land unto you according to the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass that you shall divide it by lot for an inheritance unto you and the strangers that sojourn among you which shall beget children among you and they shall be unto you as born in the country among the children of Israel and they shall have inheritance with you among the tribes of Israel. And it shall come to pass uh, that in what tribe the stranger sojourneth, there shall you give him an inheritance, saith the Lord God. Um, so these are those rectangular strips uh, I was telling you about that each tribe gets. But it's interesting to me because the strangers are given great accommodation here. You don't see the same level of, of accommodation. Um, the strangers had to be sort of following along with basically the plan of God and Israel if they were gonna be accepted but in the millennial kingdom, there's no rules around it. If they're strangers, show them kindness and give them an inheritance. Like that's really something. That's the heart of the Lord here. Makes you wonder, you know, as we see people that are disenfranchised and homeless and, and without a place to live and we see all the burning RVs and the Portland with needles everywhere and um, people angry and upset. Um, it's an interesting thing that the, the further down the road we get in all this, we just see kind of this mess and people are angry at the homeless people. And um, it, it makes you wonder, Lord, are, does the church need to step up and do something different? And, and I'm not saying you know, that um, uh, we go and just try to clean everything up because churches go do that. I've seen churches pull up with dump trucks and take it to the garbage. And even Eighth and Creek, we've done stuff like that. But at the same time, it's like you know, shooting elephants with a BB gun. Like we're barely even, I think there's some leadership issues that are making uh, people's lives more and more miserable. Um, you know, I think as Portland, as we keep handing out more and more needles, so if people have sanitary needles, and you find these needles everywhere all over Portland. Um, if you go into Multnomah County, it's, it's crazy. Uh, are we really helping people or are we, are we actually enabling them to really wipe their lives out? There's huge questions I have about that. Um, I do think we need to pray about that, and Athey Creek does uh, a lot. But at the same time, I look forward to the millennial kingdom where the stranger that's been sort of messed up, uh, there's gonna be a different way to do it. There'll be an inheritance for them and there'll be a, an, an um, enforced righteousness by Jesus. Well, chapter 48 is also more measurements and stuff like that. Let's finish up the book and then we'll call it a night. Um, it starts off with um, the northern seven tribes uh, in verses um, one through seven. Now these are the names of the tribes from the north end 
to the coast of the way of Hethlon, as one goeth to Hamat, Hatzar Enon, the border of Damascus northward to the coast of Hamat, for these are his sides, east and west, a portion for Dan. So there's Dan. By the way, I forgot to mention one thing. You might say, Brett, Damascus, hello. That's not part of Israel, that's part of Syria. But do you remember in the Bible, the Lord gives the dimensions of, of Israel. Um, the book of Numbers defines it very clearly where the borders of Israel actually are. And guess what? At the height of Israel's power and prosperity, it was probably Solomon. At Solomon's reign, at his best of his best, Israel has only in history possessed one-tenth of all that God promised them. They've never possessed all that God's promised them. If you look at the de definitions, it, it includes parts of Egypt and parts of Jordan and Iran, uh, pardon me, Iraq and uh, Syria and, and Lebanon. Like the, 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 the land that the Lord promised the Jews is much, much, 10 times bigger than when Solomon was in power. I believe the time they'll see finally the, the, the land bordered, like the Lord says in his word, it's gonna be during the millennial kingdom. That's when it'll finally kick into gear. Uh, and that's why Damascus and some of these places that are kind of outlying in the Middle East, you're like, what does that have to do with Israel? It will in the millennial kingdom. It's gonna be a huge space compared to what it is today. So that's Dan, verse two, and by the border of Dan from the east side to the west side, a portion for Asher, and by the border of Asher from the east side to the west side, a portion for Naphtali, and uh, by the border of Naphtali uh, from the east side to the west side, a portion for Manasseh, and by the border of Manasseh from the east side to the west side, a portion for Ephraim, and by the border Ephraim uh, from the uh, east side even unto the west side, a portion for Reuben and by the border of Reuben from the east side and to the west side, a portion for Judah. So the first seven tribes listed there. Now there's a break from the tribes and we're gonna talk about the sacred portion of the land. Uh, you know, um, and uh, it's where uh, the worship and men of Judah and stuff like that are gonna be next to it, verse eight. So it has more to do with the location and you can almost map this out too. Uh, you can draw a little map. And you, if you Google it, Ezekiel 48, you can find sort of the way this lays out. Um, verse eight, by the border of Judah from the east side to the west side shall be the offering, um, oblation or parcel of ground, um, the offering which you shall offer five and 20,000 reeds in breadth and in length as one of the other parts from the east side to the west side and the sanctuary shall be in the midst of it. The oblation that you shall offer to the Lord shall be of five and 20,000 in length and 10,000 in breadth. Um, we're talking about a huge area here. I hope you see that. It's, um, it's a lot of miles in size. Um, and, and then verse 10, and for them, even for the priests shall be this holy oblation toward the north, five and 20,000 in length and toward the west, thousand in breadth, 10,000 in breadth and toward the east, 10,000 in breadth, and toward the south, five and 20,000 uh, in length, and the sanctuary of the Lord shall be in the midst thereof. So these are um, rectangular shaped chunks also. It, verse 11, shall be for the priests that are sanctified, the sons of Zadok. We read about them in chapter 44, verse 15, and we talked about why the sons of Zadok get a special um, iteration of all this stuff. Uh, we talked about it last week. So the priests of Zadok, sons of Zadok, which have kept my charge, which went not astray when the children of Israel went astray as the Levites went astray. 
And this is the oblation of the land that is offered uh, shall be unto them a thing most holy by the border of the Levites. And over against the border of the priests, the Levites shall have five and 20,000 in length and 10,000 in breadth. And all the length shall be five and 20,000 and the breadth 10,000. And they shall not sell of it, neither exchange nor alienate the first fruits of the land for it is holy unto the Lord. So there, if you can picture, there's these two rectangular uh, shapes sort of um, juxtaposed one to another uh, at the two sides. That's kind of the, the description here. Uh, verse 15. And the 5,000 that are left in the breadth over against the five and 20,000 shall be a profane place for the city for dwelling for the suburbs. Um, and the city shall be in the midst thereof. And these shall be the measures thereof, the north side 4,500, the south side 4,500, and on the east side 4,500, um, and the west side uh, 4,500. And the suburbs of the city shall be toward the north 250 and toward the south 250 and toward the east 250 and toward the west 250. So we got a couple squares there. <laughs> Again, uh, you know, you look at blueprints of a house, you don't really care what they say until it's your house. Um, and that's why the Jews, I think, are very interested in these dimensions. And we will be, I think, when we see it in the millennial kingdom. Um, verse 18, and the residue in length over against the oblation of the holy portion shall be 10,000 eastward, 10,000 westward, and it shall be over against the oblation of the holy portion. And the increase thereof shall be for food unto them that serve the city. And they that serve the city shall serve it out of all the tribes of Israel. All the oblation shall be five and 20,000 by five and 20,000. Ye shall offer the holy oblation four square and the possession of the city. Okay, so that was the holy portion of the city that's laid out there, um, the sacred portion as some people call it. Now, uh, the next verses, verses 21 through 22 is the portion for the prince, the mysterious prince. Uh, verse 21, the residue the remaining shall be for the prince on the one side and on the other side of the holy oblation and of the possession of the city over against the five and 20,000 of the oblation toward the east border and the westward over against the five and 20,000 toward the west border over against the portions for the prince. And it shall be the holy oblation and the sanctuary of the house shall be in the midst thereof. Moreover, from the possession of the Levites, and from the possession of the city being in the midst of that which is the princes between the border of Judah and the uh, border of Benjamin shall be for a prince. So this prince obviously is important. You know, the Levites get a huge chunk. Um, the, the Zadokians get a huge chunk. And the, priest, the prince gets a whole huge chunk. And, and it's interesting um, that uh, he gets such an important role. Um, now, uh, by the way, um, this thing about the, the prince and what have you, um, well, I'll leave that to you to keep digging. There's, there's a lot of good stuff we can talk about um, in this, but let me just give you a couple of scriptures to jot down. Uh, first of all, Ezekiel 34, verse 23 and 24. It says this, uh, this is Ezekiel talking about the prince. And I will set up one shepherd over them and he shall feed them, even my servant David, he shall feed them and he shall be their shepherd. And I am the, uh, the Lord will be their God and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. Earlier in chapter 34, Ezekiel did say that. And we, we dismiss that sometimes as well. The son of David, Jesus, must be the prince he's talking about. And it could be. But some argue that no, this is David 
who is called the prince. Uh, literally, just take uh, Ezekiel 34, verses 23 through 24, and they say, see, there it is, the prince. Also Ezekiel 37, similarly, Ezekiel 37, verse 24 and 25 says this, and David, my servant, shall be king over them, and they shall have one shepherd, and they shall also walk in my judgments and observe my statutes to do them, and they shall dwell in the land that I have given Jacob, the servant wherein their fathers have dwelt. And they shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever and ever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. So this is where some people say, see, this is David. Uh, that's where the David prince uh, uh, possibility comes from. So hopefully I haven't totally confused you, um, but it is an interesting question of who is this prince. So the prince gets a chunk of this, uh, this land uh, in verses 21 and 22. Now, in verse 23, to, um, uh, to the end of this chapter in the book, we have the remaining five tribes that get their portion. Verse 23, for as the rest of the tribes from the east side to the west side, Benjamin shall have a portion by the border of Benjamin from the east side unto the west side, Simeon shall have a portion. And by the border of Simeon from the east side unto the west side, Issachar a portion. And by the border of Issachar, from the east side to the west side, Zebulun, a portion. And by the border of Zebulun, from the east side to the west side, Gad, a portion. And by the border of Gad, at the south side, southward, and the border shall even be from Tamar to the waters of strife in Kadesh and to the rivers toward the great sea. This is the land which ye shall divide by lot unto the tribes of Israel for an inheritance. And these are the portions, saith the Lord God. And these are the goings out of the city of the north side, 4,500 measures. And the gates of the city shall be after the names of the tribes of Israel. Three gates northward, one gate Reuben, one gate Judah, and one gate of Levi. New gates, new names, no longer the gates of Jerusalem that we know today. And verse 32, at the east side, 4,500 and three gates, one gate of, the, uh, of Joseph, one gate of Benjamin, one of Dan, at the south side, 4,500 measures, three gates, one gate Simeon, one gate Issachar, one gate Zebulun. And the west side, 4,500 with their three gates, one of the gates Gad, one gate Asher, one gate Naphtali. And we end with a bang here, are you ready? Verse 35, and it was round about 18,000 measures and the name of the city from that day shall be Jehovah Shammah. Uh, that's what it is. Uh, some of your Bibles say that. Some of your Bibles say the Lord is there. That's what Jehovah Shammah means. The Lord is there. Um, no longer is it gonna be called Yerushalem or Jerusalem, the city of peace. It is gonna be that, but it's the Prince of Peace. Once he moves in, it's gonna be called the Lord is there. Why? Because he's gonna be there and it's gonna be awesome. Uh, and so there's great hope for the world, not because of you or me ushering in the kingdom, the reason that there's hope for the world is Jesus is gonna be there. Don't you look forward to the day where Jesus is here, ruling and reigning? Man, I am too, amen? Amen. Yes. And you did it, Ezekiel, nice work. That's, that's, a, that's a mouthful, that, that end, but we did it. And Daniel next week, yeah, that's gonna be a blast. Well, let's pray. Lord, we are thankful. Uh, Lord, these sections of your word, I know a lot of detail and, and, um, and Lord, a lot of meaning that we get a sense that we only scratch the surface, um, really even tonight for sure, 
Um, but we do look to your word. I pray that this might even embolden some even here to go deeper and to dig further. And uh, there's just so much here I think that we're missing. But, um, but we know your word is so deep that, that it's, it's past any scholar's ability. But I love that your word is also just a refreshing pool that even a child can wade in and enjoy the cool waters of your word. So we're thankful, Lord, for that. Um, and I pray your blessing. I pray that you'd cause our minds to remember the words of Ezekiel so that, um, so that we will look forward to that day where you rule and reign from this earth, where you um, bring Jerusalem back to where it should be. Um, Lord, we look forward to that. We pray for the peace of Jerusalem, Lord. You tell us in your word to do that. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem for they will prosper that love thee. So Lord, we do pray for Jerusalem's peace. We know ultimately that's when you come, the Prince of Peace and rule from Jerusalem. Until then, let us be, Lord, just shining lights. Use each one of my brothers and sisters. Lord, I pray that um, in this day that we live, that it wouldn't be all about us or about our lives or our thing. Lord, we want to, to, like John the Baptist prayed, we want to decrease that you might increase, that people will know you and know your word. Use me and use us as Athey Creekers. Lord, I pray that we'd um, not be all about Athey Creek, that we'd be all about your son, Jesus, and that we just give that word of, of that Jesus is coming soon, um, and that we'd give people that hope, pointing them to you, Lord. So bless these, your people, tonight. We pray that you'd uh, bring good fruit from this study in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>